All right, this evening we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 8. And we'll begin by asking the Lord's blessing upon our time together. Father, these are the days of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. The covenant which is not in externals, but in the reality of an internal renovation. And all this because it is written on his heart. We thank you for your dear son, not only our high priest and mediator, but our covenant head. And so as we consider this part of your word this evening, we ask for your illuminating spirit's presence to help us see the deep riches of Christ. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, last week, as we were concentrating on the contrast between the priesthood of the sons, small s, of Levi and the son, capital S, of God, which is featured there in the seventh chapter, we may have lost the thread of the narrative motif of the epistle, a motif which I have suggested is a kind of dramatic panorama or paradigm for the entire letter, namely the sojourn or pilgrimage motif. And yet if you pause to think for a moment about the origin, particularly of that Levitical priesthood, you will realize that it occurred during the time of the sojourn or the pilgrimage of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Following their release from captivity in Egypt, of course, they came into the wilderness where God revealed himself from Mount Sinai and in other ways so as to give to them a earthly mediatorial access into his presence. So what has been discussed in that seventh chapter is a part of this larger narrative paradigm, namely what goes along with being on a pilgrimage. The people of God on pilgrimage stand in need of a priestly mediator, a priestly intercessor. And of course, the point of that seventh chapter is that in our pilgrimage, we, the Hebrews of the end of the age, in our pilgrimage, we also have a priestly mediator, an intercessor. But he is of far more excellent character and nature than the sons of Levi. He is the very being of God himself. He is the very person of the second person of the deity. All right, now in this eighth chapter, which you will recognize as containing the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the New. Yes, of all the New Testament books and of all the chapters in the New Testament, this eighth chapter of Hebrews has the longest quotation from the Old Testament in it. And it is the citation from Jeremiah 31 that occurs at the end of this eighth chapter. Well, that quotation is featuring 
the new covenant, the new covenant that Jeremiah predicts, the new covenant which has come in the blood of Christ, sealed in his finished work, atonement, exaltation, resurrection, etc. And so, once again, we're reminded of the covenant that was made during the sojourn of Israel in the wilderness. Pilgrims are brought into a covenant relationship. God reveals himself to them as their covenant God. And in these last days, we have had a better covenant revealed to us in our pilgrimage. It is the covenant, the new covenant of the work and person of Christ. All right, so both chapters 7 and 8 are not deviating from this larger narrative paradigm, this larger narrative scheme, namely that uh, the author is using the sojourn paradigm, sojourn motif, particularly as it occurs in the career of the children of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. Priestly order, tabernacle, uh, ritual, and a covenant dynamic. All right, now with that background to this eighth chapter, uh, let's take a look at the structure, first of all, uh, of these uh, these verses. Now, if you'll look at verse 28 at the end of chapter 7 and at verse 8 at the beginning of chapter 8, you will notice two words that are duplicated in both of those verses. And I'll ask you if you can identify them. And if you see them, please just shout it out. Thank you, Ben. Yes, you'll notice high priest in 28, high priest in verse 1 of chapter 8. And what do we call that kind of structure, Ben? Les mots crochet. Give it to us en français. Thank you, Ben. And as a simpler English word for that, hook words. All right. So we have this hook pattern. Once again, this kind of chain link concatenation or like crocheting, you know, hooking your loops together. So these chapters are uh, united as a kind of seamless Narrative garment. I'm going to use my word narrative again because I think he continues to unfold his story. Now, let's skip down to the last verse of chapter 8 and let's compare it with the first verse of chapter 9. And once again, ask the question do you see anything there that is exactly the same? The word covenant, uh, notice that the word covenant is in italics. And so it is not in the Greek text, though it is correctly understood. So it's helping you understand what the reference is. But because it's in italics, it's not a translation of what's in the Greek. So what word is the same in 13 and in verse 1? First. Notice the word first. All right. So once again, at the beginning and end of one of his chapters, he gives us this hook pattern. He continues to 
chain link his chapters or chain link his story. So he's going to move from the tabernacle motif in chapter 7, though he's going to return to it at the beginning of this eighth chapter, as we'll see. He's going to move from the tabernacle motif, which is a wilderness or pilgrimage motif, and he's going to move into a covenant motif, particularly in chapter 8, which is also a wilderness or a pilgrimage motif. But he's also going to connect this with chapter 9. So you'll have to come back next week to see why he does that. Same time, same station, Lord willing. All right, so we have this basic hook pattern frame that kind of structures the beginning and end of chapter 8. Now, looking inside for a moment, at verse 1, do you see a word there that is similar to a word in verse 5? Very good, Loretta. Thank you. Heavens and heavenly are cognates. That is, they are related terms. And in fact, they are similar even in the Greek. So they are, uh, they are talking about the same kind of dimension. Now, notice what you have in verse 4. The earth. Now, notice how your outline is structured. In verse 1, heavens. In verse 5, heavenly. And they are parallel. But they sandwich the word earth in verse 4. Now, we want to talk a little later about that apparent sandwich, which is a contrastive device. He is contrasting the heavenly with the earthly. All right, now that brings us to verse 2, to be compared with verse 6. And let's see if you can pick out the word or the words that are similar in those two verses. Verse 2 and verse 6. Marge, minister, and in verse 6, ministry. Once again, cognates. So we have a frame pattern here. If you'll notice, heavens to minister and then heavenly to ministry, sandwiching earth. I'm going to suggest in a moment that that is a bracket. That is, verses 1 and 6 are a bracket. They are, in fact, parallel Heavens or the heavenly is is mentioned before minister and ministry. It's like he is rounding off or framing this section. Now, I'll come back to that frame in a moment, but let's look at the next portion of this chapter, beginning with verse 7 and noticing a word in verse 7 that is similar to a word in verse 8. Faultless and fault. Now, once again, if he is suggesting a contrast there in the first six verses between the heavenly ministry and the earthly ministry, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that, 
Notice what he's doing here. He's immediately setting up a contrast at the outset of his discussion or his quotation of the prophecy from Jeremiah about the new covenant. Interestingly, these are opposite words in the Greek. They are antonyms. And so consequently, he has a direct contrast between what is faultless or without fault and that which is with fault, verses 7 and 8. All right, now, over on the right-hand side of verse 7, I've listed two words there which have to do with the covenant imagery, the covenant dynamic itself. What two words would they be that are describing the covenant dynamic or the covenant reality? First and second. second. Notice the order. First and second. All right, he's talking about a first covenant and a second covenant, and he goes on with this lengthy quotation from Jeremiah 31. Now, in verse 13, we looked at verse 13 a moment ago, and we noticed that word first in that uh, verse, but is there another covenant word in that verse? New, yes, it is new. Right, now I want you to notice how he does this. All right, in verse 7, he does first and second. In verse 13, he does new and first, which he continues to the end of the verse to call what? Okay. The old, correct. Once again, notice the contrastive vocabulary. Okay? The contrastive vocabulary. All right, now, what is the new covenant? Is it the first? No. It is the second, isn't it? What has he done? What do we call that? A chiasm, correct. So, he has framed this last section of this chapter with a chiastic reversal of the covenant language or the covenant motif. In other words, he wants you to see that this is a mirror reciprocity, which is self-contained. It is a unit in itself. And he takes the Jeremiah passage and he sandwiches it between his chiasm. All right, now, what's the purpose then of the framing devices? We notice that verse 1 to 6 is a frame or bracketed structure based upon the sequence of the heavens and minister or heavenly and ministry. Verses 7 to 13 
are a bracketed unit based upon the relationship between first and second covenant or new and old covenant. Why is he doing this? Well, with respect to verses 1 to 6, he is focusing upon the ministry where? In heaven. Thank you, Frank. The heavenly ministry or the ministry of the heavens where Christ has sat down. Now, that means that he is not focusing on the ministry where? On the earth, which is precisely what he does. If you notice in the sandwich with verse 4, he is using an antithesis there. All right, so the ministry is this heavenly ministry or the ministry of this heavenly order, not the ministry of this earthly order. And what else? Is he suggesting in verse 2 about this ministry? Not, it's not a human ministry. It's not by men. All right, now, he's not denying the human nature of Christ here. That's not the point. So we won't want to get sidetracked here. But remember what he's done in chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, he's talked about the priesthood of the Son. So here, he's drawing in upon the character of that ministry. It is not of man. It is of God. It is of the Lord. It is of the Son of God. And so there's the contrast between not only the, uh, shall we say, the arena in which the ministry occurs, but also the person who is uh, bringing the ministry to our benefit. It is not a mere man. It is God the Son himself. All right, now, what about the frame in verses 7 to 13? If the frame in 1 to 6 is the ministry, uh, heavenly, not earthly, of God or of the Son of God, not of man, What's the frame here in 7 to 13? It's the covenant. And it's not the first covenant, but it's the second covenant. And it's not the old covenant, it's the new covenant. This author is consistent in drawing these rich contrasts between the former era in the history of redemption, particularly the era of the sojourn or pilgrimage of the Hebrews of old, as it compares or contrasts with the pilgrimage of the new, the new era, these last days, as he indicates in the first verse of this epistle, these eschatological days. <clears throat> and consequently, these days are the days of a better ministry, the ministry of the Son of God himself. A better arena, the ministry of heaven itself. A better covenant, a new covenant in Christ Jesus. All right, now that's the basic reason for the integrity of the chapter and for the two sections. It's interesting that there are some critical commentators 
who cannot understand why he has attached to the Jeremiah quotation to this opening discussion in the first six verses about the heavenly ministry. And yet, if you understand, you see how he is weaving this narrative paradigm of he continuing to unfold this story in terms of this comparison between the two eras, between the two ages, between the two uh, paradigms of pilgrimage old, pilgrimage new, pilgrimage former, pilgrimage latter, pilgrimage sub-eschatological, pilgrimage semi-eschatological, then you understand exactly why he's done it. Any questions then about the uh, structure? Do you want me to go over any of the blanks which you should have written on your sheets? Uh, Or did you miss that as we went? If so, I'll be glad to repeat it. Scott? Verses 2 and 6. 2 and 6. 2 should be minister and 6 should be ministry. Frank, would you like us to go over it for you? That's that's fine. We'll we'll do it. Uh, Verse 28 should be high priest and 8-1 should be high priest again and then over on the right opposite high priest the word heavens in verse 2 the blank is minister in verse 4 the blank is earth in 5 it is heavenly In six, it is ministry. In seven, the one on the left, first blank is faultless. And just underneath it, in eight is fault. And then in seven, over on the right, the two words, first and second. And then in verse 13, new and first. And you might want to put in parenthesis beside first, old. And then in nine one underneath first, first again. All right, now I've laid emphasis upon this vocabulary of contrast, these themes of contrast, these motifs of contrast, the contrast between Christ's priesthood, Christ's arena in which he ministers and intercedes, Christ's new covenant and the old, the former. That which has passed away. Well, with respect to this vocabulary of contrast, let's think about some further categories. First of all, let's think about the word spatial. What does the word spatial mean, Art? Uh, It refers to space or three-dimensional space. Very good. Now, what... Spatial words have we detected already as we've looked at the structure? Verse 4. The earth. Verse 1. The heavens. All right. Now those are contrastive categories. So under spatial, you can write earth. And under the blank, and I haven't given you a term for that yet, you can write heavens. Those are contrastive vocabulary words. Now, what else about spatial with respect to heaven itself? 
Is heaven a space? Now notice, when he talks about the heavens in verse 1, is he talking about where that satellite is coming into our heavens? Ben, you shook your head. No, he's not. He's not talking about the created heavens or what we call the canopy of the heavens above us. What is he talking about? The heavens where God dwelt. Let's put it this way. The invisible heavens. Is that all right? Not the visible heavens, but the invisible heavens. Now back to that question. Is the invisible heaven... A space. Yes, you see, I, I like the kind of smiles on your face as you ponder that. This is an interesting thing to ponder, is it not? What does this man say in chapter 12, verse 23? Our author says something in chapter 12, verse 23. Marge? Twelve twenty-three. And? And spirits made perfect. Do spirits occupy space? What kind of spirits are these? Are they spirits with bodies? A body would occupy space, at least as we understand a body. Are these spirits with bodies? The spirits of just men and women, men corporately, collectively, Made perfect. These are disembodied spirits. Spirits without a body. They are glorified spirits. Do these glorified, disembodied spirits inhabit space? Is heaven a space? Is it art's three-dimensional space? Because a space is something, something that we can see. Is heaven, is this heaven something that we can see? No, not with these eyes. With the eyes of faith we see it, but not with these eyes. It is invisible to this three-dimensional arena. It doesn't mean it's not real, but it is not <coughs> visible. It does not have the dimension that we understand in our physical, visible, tangible arena. Heaven, this unseen arena, is heaven a space or is heaven a place? 
Robert? Okay, I've heard physicists discuss this. They say that God exists in a minimum of 11 dimensions of time and space. What you're talking about in the visible universe, what we call visible, is the first four dimensions. Therefore, dimension 5 through 11 is where God would exist. Let's, let me respond to the physicists by saying God is outside any dimension they can understand or imagine. Uh, this is the point of this little exercise. <clears throat> we, we come to realize that heaven, spirits that dwell there, disembodied spirits, heaven is a place beyond the dimensions that we know. It doesn't deny the reality of that dimension, but it is a dimension that belongs to something completely unseen, non-spatial, but still placial. So that's the word I want you to put opposite spatial. Because I saw Loretta's little wry smile when I asked, is heaven a place? Placial versus spatial. We're underscoring the reality of heaven as a place. But we're contrasting it with three-dimensional space or any kind of created dimensional reality that we're aware of. Which, of course, is to reflect on God himself, is it not? Does God have space in his being? In other words, is God bound by space? No, you see, he is outside of it. He is in a completely different dimension, a different arena, a completely different reality. The only way we can describe that reality in which God is, is to say it's godness. It's godness. It's not humanness. It's not treeness. See, it's not chairness. It's godness. That's him in his reality. Well, then what about this place called heaven? Is that place identical with God himself? Is the heavenly dimension the same as God? You would, okay. In other words, you wouldn't be making distinctions, right? Okay. Yeah. Very, very good point. It's kind of like a no-brainer, kind of obvious. All right. But we think about the fact that God is in heaven. His dwelling place is there. That's the language of the Bible. Does that mean that God is contained in the heaven? No. You see, He's distinct from it, though He inhabits it. So heaven is a place that has been created by God, but a dimension of a place created by him which is completely non-spatial.
It does not have three dimensions. Ah, but you say to me, Jesus' glorified body went into it. Yes, but it became a body, 1 Corinthians 15, spiritual, meaning perfectly subject to the spirit, the spirit which is the dynamic of that dimension. So it is not a body with the same character as this body. It is consistent and continuous with it, but it is not bound by its same limitations. After all, that body, as you know, after his resurrection, could move across time and space instantaneously. He could be in one place and instantaneously he could be in the upper room and then he could be instantaneously gone. Uh, I don't think any of your bodies work that way. I know mine doesn't. So this is simply to push us to realize that we are dealing here with mysteries in part. But God has talked to us in language which is spatial about heaven, has he not? When you think of heaven, what do you think of? Do you think of a four-square city with great gem gates at all of the four corners and gold streets? Yes, you do. God has communicated to us in that spatial language in order to give us some sense of the glory of that place. But when you get to heaven, are you going to walk on gold streets? In other words, is it going to be lined with bullion, which you see being advertised on all the financial networks these days? That it was until today. Are you going to go up to a gate and see there a great sapphire at the entranceway? Huge. Is it going to be literally a cube building, castle, wall, fortress? Is that what it's going to be? No, you see, as Calvin points out several times, God accommodates himself to our way of understanding. How could we even get a hold of it in terms of its majesty and surpassing glory if he didn't describe it in the glorious images of our own world. And yet, as he himself is far above our own world as our creator, so his heavenly city is far above any earthly city. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. As glorious as you can imagine it, it is beyond your greatest and most glorious imagination. He's drawing you up into that arena, into that aura, into its majesty, so as you will realize the surpassing excellence and the majesty of it, which the Apostle Paul saw and could not even describe. He says, I have no human language to tell you what it was like. I was there, caught up into the third heaven. But I can't say anything in in Greek, or we would say in English, that would really give you the flavor of what it was really like.
All right, so heaven is a place. It's placial. It is not spatial. And in this chapter, he makes a couple of other contrastive comparisons, one of which we've already mentioned from verse 2. The contrast between Scott? No, no. We're still doing with placial and spatial. Okay, under placial you should have heavens, under spatial you should have earth, verse 1, verse 4. But we want to look at another placial versus spatial comparison in verse 2. What's the spatial? The sanctuary or the tabernacle, depending upon your translation. Very good. So, uh, what's the character of this sanctuary? Who did it? Man, right, right. The spatial is man pitched it. And it is contrasted with what? Frank? The one the Lord pitched, yes. All right, so notice, the placial is the Lord pitched that tabernacle. Not in an earthly place, not in an earthly space. It doesn't have the dimensions of that earthly tabernacle pitched by man. Because that earthly tabernacle was made out of created matter. It was created, created by all of the things that were used from the earth to build it. But notice chapter 9, verse 11. What about that tabernacle? Chapter 9, verse 11, okay? Not of this creation. Not of this creation. All right, here are the contrastive words, the contrastive themes of this opening section of chapter 8. Contrasting the place of the heavenly tabernacle with the space of the earthly tent pitched by man and the elements of this creation. All right, now that brings us to the next series of words and verses. I haven't filled in the blank on the left, though you may be uh, easy, that may be easy for you to guess. Well, we're going to look now at temporal categories, and I've given you some synonyms, or actually they're antonyms, in the blank, below the blank space, sempiternal versus ephemeral, 
everlasting versus neverlasting, and permanent versus transient. Now, that's the kind of uh, contrastive vocabulary that we're looking at this time. And we'll begin by asking, is heaven a temporal place? Is heaven a place of time? I heard somebody mutter something. No. No. Pete says no. Scott? Not, not time as this dimension. Once again, we're back to <clears throat> Art's comment about three dimension or this dimension. <clears throat> Why is heaven not a place of time? Time is a created entity. Okay. Uh, Einstein's mathematics proved that. Therefore, it's part of the it's the fourth dimension is part of the visible universe. Okay. And if this lies outside of the visible universe, then it has to lie outside of time. So, so what word would you say to describe that arena? <clears throat> Timeless. Uh, not time as we know it, but there's still, there's still change. We're not asking that question yet, Professor. Eternal. All right. Heaven is an eternal dimension, everlasting dimension. Now, when we say eternal and we say everlasting, are we talking about time? No. No. You see, we have no time in an eternal dimension, an eternal arena. In an everlasting arena, there is no clock on the wall. All Time is as present time. Well, then, how do things progress in a timeless arena? Or is there any progression in a timeless arena? Do you actually increase in knowledge in this everlasting arena? Do you continue to go to Bible study on Thursday night in this eternal arena? Well, it won't be on Thursday night. It'll be all the time. And it won't be just the Bible. It'll be a rich fellowship as well. I don't want to, I don't want to deny that. I'll come to that in the next category. But, all right, you see, you're thinking about what happens in a timeless arena. Now we're back to Professor Sanborn's untoward interruption. <laughs> he was pushing in which dimension, Scott? Uh, we're talking about in or which direction, I should say. Yes, is the progress in heaven, as Edwards would argue. Thank you for citing the great mind on this point, Jonathan Edwards. Um, Edwards, of course, has prodded many of our minds <laughs> into, uh, into places where we would never have ventured to go. <laughs> but praise God for him. He makes us think about these profound 
regions and reaches of God's own wonderful character and being. In this everlasting, timeless arena, there is succession. Succession. There is sequence. But it is not succession which is bound or measured by time. It's not sequence which is temporal. You see, there's an order, even as there is an order, shall we say a logical order to the succession of God's own thoughts. He thinks creation before he thinks redemption in a logical order. He thinks perfection in the garden before he thinks of redemption in the new garden, the eschatological garden. So there is sequence. There is succession. Even in the mind of God, there is succession. In this mind that has no boundaries to it and no time in it, there is still one event after another or one event before another. Well, how can you have succession without time? I don't know. I don't know because, you see, I'm bound by it. I'm bound by, okay, time has advanced and I succeeded in moving my foot one step to the right and I remember that previous successive act. Or you see, I'm bound by this. Now, I'm not saying I'm hampered by it or hindered by it. I don't want to say anything negative about it. This is just the reality about this created order. But God is not a creature. And the arena that he inhabits is not created, aside from heaven itself, to hold the spirits of just men and the angels. But having made it, it's made... In an everlasting dimension. So it has no time boundaries to it. Though it has succession to it. So we have sequence in this category or succession without time. Now, I don't mean to have you lose sleep over these things. But as you ponder the being of God, and it's perfectly right for you to do so, for you to think about him in that way. And as you meditate upon what kind of an arena or dimension he dwells in, or he is a part of, though having said that, you see, I'm I'm almost saying he's bound by it. You understand, I have to subtract that out of there, but nonetheless, you get the idea. You're contemplating God in himself, heaven in itself, what is it if it's timeless? What if it's, if it's not spatial? What is it? And you'll go back to the scriptures to think about the rich vocabulary and imagery that is there in order to fertilize your thinking, to kind of encourage and enrich your meditation. Now, on the other hand, you may think that this is nonsense. This is a waste of time. This is something that, you know, you just have no interest in which is fine, you're just content to take, you know, the scriptures as they're there for you, and that's fine as well. I'm not, I'm not quibbling about that. 
But understand that God himself is a very rich and deep being. And if you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and soul, he's going to draw you into that depth and riches for all eternity. It's all right for you to start now. Even realizing that a lot of it will be looking through a glass darkly. But someday you will see face to face. And will you thank God that you had a head start? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But you see, when Scott mentions Jonathan Edwards, this was the kind of thing that Edwards' profound, godly mind, what a man of God Jonathan Edwards was. This was the kind of thing that he thought about. He would go out riding in the afternoon to veg, as we would say, that is to relieve his mind, okay? I sit down and watch mindless football games. This is to kind of get all the clutter out of my mind. Okay, I particularly like college football. But at any rate, he would go out to ride, and as he rode, he would be thinking about things like we've been talking about. And he would pin a little piece of paper to a part of his coat as he rode along. And he may come back with maybe half a dozen or a dozen pieces of paper pinned to his coat. And he would take each pin off and lay the paper down and he would write in his journal what he was thinking about when he pinned that piece of paper to his coat. Now, I'm amazed at a disciplined mind like that. See, I I can't remember sometimes what I did yesterday, let alone what I pinned to my coat. But nonetheless, this is this is the kind of mind that is reflecting and He's thinking about these kinds of questions as he goes amongst others. Amongst others, The collection of many of those thoughts is gathered up in a book called Edward's Miscellanies, the miscellaneous thoughts that he had. Now, don't go out and buy it. Why? It is extremely dense. If you want to buy something by Edwards, go out and buy his history of redemption. At least it's going through the story of the Bible, and it's simple enough that you can follow it through, <laughs> or some of his sermons. But the miscellanies are really challenging, even for me. I don't know about Scott, but the miscellanies that I have read, you know, sometimes I throw my hands up in despair and I say, I, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's like reading Immanuel Kant. I don't, I don't get it at all. But there are others that are really quite rich. <clears throat> so it, it, it wouldn't be worth your money to invest in the miscellanies, you know, buy, buy some of his sermons, or as I said, the History of Redemption, which is a very interesting survey of the Bible. All right. Now, in this category, we haven't looked at any of the things in the text, so that the word over against temporal in the, bl- in the blank there should be eternal. Eternal versus temporal. Now, what is temporal? That is, what is bound by time? Verse 5. The copy, very good. The copy. And the Greek word here is... Type, type, 
Now, contrast that with another word in this unit in verses 1 to 6. Now, let me give you a clue. You will find it in verse 2. The true. Correct. All right. Now, since he uses type in verse 5, I'm going to suggest that we can say the word true can be rendered anti-type. So the true tabernacle is the eternal one. We could even say the heavenly one. But the temporal one is the type. It's based on the anti-type or the heavenly model. And it is a shadow of that heavenly reality. All right, so with respect to the tabernacle, once again, we have this pilgrim image, this sojourning image. Here we have a type which is related, a temporal type, which is related to an eternal antitype. A true tabernacle in the heavens. Now, there are other temporal Words that are used here, verse 13. What would the temporal word be here? Obsolete. Obsolete, yes. Because why? Okay, as he goes on, it's obsolete, why? Because it's old. There's your temporal word, old. And it is contrasted with new. Okay? The new is the eternal covenant. The old is the temporal covenant. The old is the one that is antiquated. The new is the one that is renovated or become new. Well, in verse 7, we have the same kind of contrast. As we noted when we pointed out the chiasm that he uses... In verse 7, what's the temporal word? First. First. And what's the eternal word? Second. Second. The contrast between the first and the second. And finally, there's one other. This one's a little more difficult to perceive, but it is clearly present. It is in verse 3. And I'm going to give it to you. It is the word sacrifices. Now, how is that temporal? Well, it's obvious that these sacrifices that he's describing there, offered by a high priest, are temporal. But what does he say up in verse 27 of chapter 7? How many times? Once and for all. These sacrifices in 8.3 are continual, are they not? They keep on going on year after year, over and over. One priest, one descendant of Levi after another. So the continual sacrifices of 8.3 are contrasted with the once for all eternal sacrifice of Christ in 7.27.
All right, now those other words that I actually printed on your outline, sempiternal is a synonym for eternal. It means always eternal. Ephemeral means uh, uh, short-lived. Everlasting, neverlasting, that contrast is simple. Permanent versus transient. Transient is something that does not endure. Permanent is something that endures. Right, now that brings us down to our last uh, series of contrastive vocabulary. Individual versus something else, which will be a, uh, a, a blank word for the present time. And it's obvious that you need a break. So stand up and get your blood flowing, and we'll come back and look at this last category and the second page of the outline. Now, this last category at the bottom of the page, having individual there at the top of the right-hand column, It's a category which deals with a contrast between something else and individuation. Now, I may be speaking Greek, you may think, uh, for the moment, but uh, stick with me. And let's think about what this may relate to. First of all, is heaven a place of union and communion? Is heaven a place of union and and communion. And I heard Robert say, yes, it is. <clears throat> union with whom? And all the saints. Union with the Godhead and communion with the saints. Very good. So we talk about the communion of the saints, and we talk about its earthly manifestation, but heaven is its uh, perfect manifestation. Well, think about a union with the central person in the Godhead, namely the Lord Jesus, who is the Son between the Father and Holy Spirit. He's central to the Trinity, and he's also central to our faith. I don't mean to neglect the Father and the Holy Spirit, but we'll talk about union with Christ, meaning to be joined to Christ, or as the New Testament uses the phrase repeatedly, to be in Christ. Now, this in Christ is the language of union with, being united with, united in him. Well, is this a physical union? No, it is not a physical union. It is a spiritual union. Okay, It is a union of our soul, our spirit with him. And is called, in the more technical theological literature, the mystical union. Now, mystical here doesn't mean esoteric or kind of wild magic categories. Mystical here means spiritual. It means of the mystical order, or the order of spiritual reality. So the mystical union is the spiritual union of a believer with Christ. That is, he is defined as being in Christ Jesus. 
Paul routinely uses this phrase, but the other New Testament writers use it as well. Now, in this union with Christ and in its heavenly phase, in its heavenly manifestation, in its heavenly reality of experiencing that heavenly union with Christ, are you dissolved into Christ? Are you dissolved into Christ? No. So your individuation, okay, or your distinction as an individual is not lost. Let me ask it another way. Are you united with Christ so as to be deified with him? God as he is God. No. All right. So when we talk about this union with Christ, we're talking about a union in which the individual character of the believer is maintained, though he is joined to all the rich spiritual benefits that are in Christ himself. It's like a flowing back and forth between, okay? Christ communicates those those blessings and benefits to us, and we receive them reciprocally with thanksgiving and gratitude and reflect praise and glory and honor to him. All right, so this is a reciprocal union, but not a dissolution. So we have union without loss of individuation without loss of personal distinction. So the category on the left, which is blank, should be mystical. Mystical versus individual. Now here, when I'm saying individual, I'm saying individual out of Christ. Out of Christ. So mystical in the first place would be in Christ and individual would be without or outside of Christ. All right, now how does that come out in chapter 8? Begin with verse 9. Begin with verse 9. God says that he did what with the children of Israel? He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them out of slavery. All of those individuals whom he brought out of slavery were in Christ. They were not only individually part of the communion of Israel, they were also in God who brought them out in a spiritual union with him? No, they were not. How do you know, Ben? Because their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. We've already been through that. Consequently, Jeremiah knows the very same thing. This individual relationship to God of being brought out of slavery did not mean that they were brought out of spiritual bondage, did it? Else, they would have not 
dropped from an evil heart of, what does the writer say in Hebrews 4? Unbelief, an evil heart of unbelief. So in other words, these individuals were individualistic. They were not joined or united to the God who redeemed them. So the contrast in verse 9 is being taken out of slavery as an individual, but not being taken out of slavery to sin as a mystical, redeemed, regenerated soul. Now, I've already alluded to the fact that those individuals died in the desert. That's also in verse 9 of our chapter. Notice what he says. They did not continue in my covenant. They died in the wilderness. That would be contrasted with entering into God's rest, Hebrews chapter 4, and continuing in that everlasting rest, the saints' everlasting rest. Outside of Christ or without Christ, And in Christ, outside of Christ, without Christ as an individual, in Christ as a part of the mystical union with the Savior. Now, I've given you two words there, which are contrastive. Superficial as contrasted with interstitial. Interstitial is actually a biological term. It refers to the deep inner tissues and the relationships between cells inside that deep inner tissue bond. Superficial is only surface level. It is not deep. It is not interstitial. I'm driving at words which are similar in order to emphasize this inner, deep inner relationship, this mystical union, spiritual union with Christ as over against this superficial relationship where there is no deep inner relationship. It is shallow, just like superficial. It is cosmetic. It has to be made up. You have to put on a face. That's what makeup is. You make up the face. All right. Now, uh, ladies, don't think I'm down on makeup uh, used in moderation. All things need to be used in moderation. But nonetheless, if like most Hollywood movie stars, you're putting on your face in order to cover what you really look like, then you see you're being superficial. That's not the real you out there. You know, that's the you for the camera. Okay, the real you is something else. And once we get the veneer and the the, uh, makeup off, we are often quite shocked about what the real them is, aren't we? Okay, now, what I'm doing here is drawing this relationship between the Israel that came out in that era of the former covenant, the covenant at Sinai that was made with Moses in the wilderness. These people were superficially a part of the band as individuals. Yes, there were a group of them, but nonetheless... They were not there because they believed what God had promised them. They were there because they were happy to get out of bondage. Now, we can say 
that there is then a contrast between this superficial or external, merely external relationship or membership and this genuine internal relationship. The internal relationship is the spirit itself is bound, united, joined to God. It is mystically related because God is bounded to himself. But that external bond has no root of belief in it. It is superficial, it is shallow, and it will drop dead in the wilderness. Well, what about this promise that Jeremiah makes, verse 10, when he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It would seem that God was being their God when he brought them out of Egypt and they were being his people. And yet those who were in the category of his people dropped in the wilderness. Obviously, they were not part of his people. How do we then resolve this tension where God will be their God and they will be his people? When God and people will be united, when there will be a mystical union, when there will be a spiritual relationship between God and people, When one comes who is both God and the people. When one comes who is God himself and the head, the representative of the new people of God. His people will be in him. When he comes, his people will be in him from whenever he has been revealed down through the history of redemption. His people will be in their God, my Lord and my God, says Thomas. You see what it's going to take to draw together the union, the mystical union with God and the communion of the people of God with their Lord. It is going to take an incarnation of God with his people. God in his people, his people in God. He's going to have to come into history and bring them into a union with himself by performing what they have never performed by doing what they have never done by accomplishing and perfecting what they have never accomplished or perfected. Jesus Christ as the son of God is the Israel Judah of the end of the age. Jeremiah has said, In those days, in what days? 
in those eschatological days, in those last days. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What, what covenant is this? Is this with physical, earthly, uh, bloodline Israel? No, or the writer of the Hebrews wouldn't be quoting it, would he? He wouldn't be quoting this passage as if he is talking to a Gentile or a Jewish and Gentile audience. Something that is beyond the bloodline of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The house of Israel and the house of Judah are the people of God of that era. But he's writing to the people of God of this era. And this prophecy is for the people of God of the end of the age. The Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, the the Israel of God of the end of the age. And so you don't woodenly reduce this passage to a proclamation of the restoration of Israel and Judah to Palestine. No, you completely misunderstand it. The writer is not doing that. He is talking about the fact that this passage belongs to the people in the first century to whom he's writing. To the people of God of the first century Christian community. The people of God of that age. Our age. Because our age is their age. The people of God of the Son of God. God in his people. One. There is the mystical union, even as God in the flesh, one. There is the mystical union. The profundity of what occurs in this new covenant drama is that God himself will become the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. The son of God will himself be both God, the stipulator, and person, people, fulfiller, and completer of the stipulation. That is what is new about this new covenant. This new covenant is so new because God has done something dramatically new in himself. Submitting, completing, fulfilling, and accomplishing the covenant of the end of the age. So the mystical union draws us into the central mystery of our faith. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery. The central mystery of God uniting himself to man. God and his people, one body. One blessed entity and reality. Without loss of distinction and individuation. That union is sweet indeed. And that is what in its perfection Heaven is all about a blessed, everlasting fellowship and communion in union with God and with the fellowship of the saints. Yes, you know that hymn. Oh, that will be glory. Indeed, that will be glory. You will have no end of fellowship, rich, precious, deep fellowship even with Christ himself.
What does he tell you? You shall see him as he is. That means you're going to talk to him. You're going to visit with him. He's going to share with you. You're going to find out things that aren't recorded in the Bible about him. He's going to find out things that you've forgotten about yourself. And he's going to bring them to remembrance in a precious and rich benediction. We haven't even talked about the fellowship of the saints. To be able to sit down with the Apostle Paul. And now you'll be in the same dimension in the third heaven that he was, and you'll both be able to understand the language. Any questions then about these <clears throat> comparative categories, these relational or contrastive uh, categories which are coming out of this chapter? Frank? When Paul talked about being in Christ, um, the... Uh the, out, the new life or the new man was the, the difference between like, baptism, um, being one with him. Uh, the fruit, I guess, is what what is spiritual. What he did before <coughs> after. Well, his, his baptism would be a sign of his being united to Christ. Right. Okay, So it's a kind of visible representation of the washing away of his sins and him being engrafted into Christ. And yes, the fruits are going to follow because in union with Christ, it's not just the union of being saved and justified and regenerated, etc. All those uh, precious benefits which flow from his powerful, almighty work of transforming our dead hearts into hearts which are alive unto him. But the fruits of that, which are the fruits of righteousness, and holiness and peace. Sanctification flows out of that. So this union with Christ brings us into uh, into connection with all of that. So the outward is, is spiritual. The outward is, the spi- is spiritual fruits as well as actually a visible walk in the spirit. Okay? So before the world, you are walking as one who is in Christ. Okay? Before the world, you are walking as one who lives out of the heavenly mystical union already because you have been grafted or joined or united unto him who is in heaven glorified at the right hand of his father even now. So the ones that fell in the wilderness, they, they were... They were uh, what I'm trying to uh, understand is the temper or the... Um, there's no, nothing outward. It's all mystical, spiritual. The ones that fell there weren't mystical. It was all only outward. It was not internal. There was nothing internal. How could you have an evil heart of unbelief and have an internal transformation? Yeah. What I'm trying to... Uh, now yeah, I think I answered my own, or figured it out, what you just said. Yeah. Okay. I've got it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, page two. <clears throat> I want to think a little bit about the theology of the tabernacle since he's now beginning to focus... Upon the tabernacle, at the opening of this chapter, upon the ministry in the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle all about? Oh, it was a building that had lots of heavy curtains on it and had some furniture. And this is where you brought your sacrifices and so on and so forth. Yes. 
But why? There are three words there on your outline. And we want to think about those three words as we think about the tabernacle and its place in the history of redemption. Why did God institute a tabernacle? First of all, for relational reasons. The tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. And when you have a meeting with someone, you have a relationship with them. So God is establishing a basis of relationship with his people by means of this tabernacle. There he will meet them in relation. Okay, They will be related to him. He will be related to them. Looking back to Jeremiah's prophecy, which is actually vocabulary used in the covenant formulary of the Old Testament, I will be their God, they shall be my people. That is relational language. It is not primarily legal language. Notice, legal language may support that, may be subsidiary to it, but it is not primarily legal language. I will be their God, they will be my... That is personal relational language. Just like the personal relational language, you shall be my son, I shall be your father. The Trinitarian relationship is actually behind this covenantal relationship. All right. Now, in the tent of meeting, where God meets in relationship with his people, God comes to man, God draws near to man through the mediation of a high priest. So this is a relationship which is mediated by a high priest. There is a go-between. There is someone in the middle between God's people and himself. I will be their God. They shall be my people. How can we get to you, God? You are far above us. You are greater than we are. You are of an entirely different nature and dimension than we are. How shall we get to you? We need a go-between. We need someone to go between our arena and his arena. And so the priest mediates between the people and God. And Christ will take that go-between into himself. He will take our very nature into his divine nature and unite it as a go-between mediator. Between both arenas, between both natures, he will unite them so that the incarnation of the Son of God is essential, essential to our having a mediator, someone who can go between the arena of our nature and the arena of God's nature. Son of God condescends to do that, which is the next category, incarnational aspect of the theology of the tabernacle. At the end of Exodus chapter 40, when Moses finishes the building of the tabernacle under the directions that he received on the mountain, when he concludes it in verses 34 and 35 of Exodus 40, we are told that the glory cloud filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord, the glory cloud of God filled that tabernacle. Now, God had to come down to do that. 
God had to condescend. He had to lower himself. He had to humble himself in order to fill up that tabernacle, to dwell in the glory cloud of that tabernacle. And notice what he condescends or humbles himself to do. My people dwell in a tent. I will dwell in a tent. He humbles himself. He condescends to dwell in a tent, a man's dwelling, a man's habitation, a man's arena. And so God incarnates himself in that tabernacle via that glory cloud. And what does John tell us? The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. John 1.14 God's incarnational aspect, even in the Old Testament tabernacle, is not only foreshadowing, but it is incarnating. It is embodying this drama of humiliation. God humbling and condescending himself to dwell as like with like, even though he is so infinitely unlike. All the riches of the condescending mercy of God, that he would accommodate himself to our nature, to our tent dwelling. Now, the final element here is eschatological. Of course, you could count on that from me. In fact, if I had let it, left it out, somebody would have raised their hand and said, what about the eschatological, right? You know me too well. All right. What about this aspect of the tabernacle? When God comes down in the glory cloud to fill up that tabernacle, he is also inviting man into his dwelling place. Granted, it is through the mediation of the high priest, but still, God is giving an invitation to the children of Israel to come into his dwelling place, his glorious dwelling place, inside, come inside to my holy of holies, come inside where I fill up with my glory, and I will fill you up with my glory, I invite you in, I invite you into my tabernacle, to my holy sanctum, my sanctum sanctorum. Is this not what we are told? That we shall see the Lamb face to face? Revelation 22, 3 and 4. Does not the Apostle John say, 1 John 3, 2, that we shall see him as he is? Does not the invitation of the tabernacle 
an invitation which has been fulfilled in the one who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. I am the place where you meet God. I am the place where God is incarnate in your midst. I am the one who invites you to come unto me and sit before my throne in my dwelling place. Face to face, visio dei, vision of God. No, nothing in between. Nothing in between. The great last line of that Bonner hymn. Nothing in between. No barrier. So that the tabernacle is projecting its theology even beyond itself. It's revealing this dramatic narrative theology, but it's also projecting it. For the tabernacle is anticipating the one who will be God with us. In the flesh, who will be the very humiliation of God. He will make himself of no reputation and take on our nature. And he will invite us to come unto him that where his father is, there we may be also. Understand, you see, that the theology of the tabernacle is the anticipation of the coming of Christ Jesus. This is not about a building. This is not about a tent. This is about the living, eternal Son of God. Which means that the temple, which comes in its place, is not about a building. It's not about brick and, brick and mortar. It's about the eternal Son of God. That's what he's doing in John chapter 2. That's what he's telling you. The temple is over. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling you. The tabernacle is over. You cannot go back to that era. You cannot go back to brick and mortar and temples in Jerusalem. You cannot go back to tents in the wilderness. You can't go back because they are obsolete. They have passed away. Is there a suggestion in verse 13 that the temple is about to be destroyed in 70 A.D. It is about to pass away. Is that the implication of that 13th verse? That is very interesting. And is worth pondering. No, it hasn't been destroyed yet. But it is about to pass away. You see what I'm trying to get you to understand? Because the writer is trying to get you to understand it. You have to look beyond this external, external, physical character of Judaism and Israel and the character of the Old Testament. You have to look beyond it. Because it is not about Jews according to the flesh. It is not about tabernacles according to tent fabric. It is not according to temple, not about temple according to brick and mortar. No matter how many concrete blocks you've got stored up in Oklahoma or wherever else to ship over there when the millennium comes. No, it's not about that at all. It's about Christ. He is the very accomplishment, fulfillment, and end of it. He's the temple. No earthly temple can compare to him. He's the tabernacle. No earthly tent can compare to him. No. 
with all due respect, we will stay with Jesus and the end of the age that has come in him. Any questions about those elements of what we're thinking about as we're thinking about the author's reflection upon the tabernacle? All right, now let's look at the new covenant as he describes it. This is the I will covenant. This is the I am able covenant. It is not the you will covenant. It is not the you are able covenant. The prophecy of this new covenant has the personal pronoun I repeatedly like a staccato throughout this section that he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So when he says... In the reading of the New American Standard Translation, verse 8, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Effect. God will effect it. I, I, I. I will, I will, I will. What does this word effect mean? Westminster Confession talks about effectual calling. What is effectual calling? Calling that no one failed. Calling that produces an effect. Is there a calling that does not produce an effect? There is the outward or universal call. So what is this effectual call? This is the inward or particular call. Effected in whom? In the elect. Elect effect. This not in the non-elect. So this call can be rejected. Can this call be rejected? It cannot because it it will not. He will make you willing, effectually, to answer his call, as he did to Abraham. Abraham, 75 years. He wasn't heeding God's call. All of a sudden, he hears God's call, and he immediately goes out looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Why? Because God effected in him what call he had given to him. All right, what's another word? What's one word for these two words? We don't talk about effectual calling so much anymore. Regeneration, being born again, having a new heart. Uh, Sounds like Hebrews 8. All right, so... The effect that God is going to produce in this new covenant is he is actually going to bring about the work or the covenant conformity or the transformation that is necessary for this covenant to be accomplished. It will be his initiative. 
It will be his act. He will decide to do it. And he will decide those in whom he will effect it. It will be his work in Christ, in the grace of Christ, in the free favor of God in Christ, in the gracious work of Christ. In other words, it will come through a mediator who will be very God of very God. In what days will it come? Behold, the days are coming, verse 8. In what days? In these last days. Hebrews 1, verse 1. The last days of this era. The days of the incarnation of the Son of God. The last days of human history which have dawned with the coming of God in the flesh. The eschatological days are the days of the arrival of this Effectual new covenant. For whom? Verses, verse 8 again. The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Is this Old Testament Judaistic Israel? No, it is not. It is the people of God. The people of God of these last days. The eschatological Israel Judah. The eschatological people of God. That people in the eschatological person who is the covenant head of all the people of God in every era, from Israel, from Judah, from the Gentiles, from the ends of the earth, all one in Christ Jesus, their covenant mediator and head. Well, what about this new covenant? It contrasts. Here's this language of contrast again. That's the reason we set up the paradigm on the first page of the outline with a contrastive language. It contrasts with that old covenant. This new covenant stands in contrast to the old. Notice the lines I've given you there. The old covenant requires a heart, but is unable to give the heart required. The old covenant requires a new heart, but the old covenant is unable to give the heart required. The new covenant gives the heart required because the requirement is written on the heart of Christ, the Son of God, who has fulfilled it, and on the hearts of those in him, mystically united to him. When he accomplishes that new covenant, Through his heart, his people accomplished that covenant in him. They are bound to him as he is bound to their heart. And his heart is bound to the heart of God. The old covenant requires circumcision of the heart. The imperative is there, particularly in Jeremiah 4. Circumcise your hearts. But the old covenant is unable to circumcise the required heart. It is powerless to circumcise it. Circumcision of the flesh is not the circumcision of the heart, which is the reason the prophets say circumcise your hearts, not your foreskins, not the external rite. 
but the internal transformation. But I cannot change my heart. I cannot transform my nature. That is right. You cannot. You are unable. The old covenant drives you to realize you are unable. That's the whole point of the law at Sinai, to drive you to realize you're unable. Not that you've got some sufficiency, but to realize you're unable and insufficient. And you must go to someone else, which is what Paul tells you in Galatians 3. You must go to Christ. The new covenant gives the circumcised heart. Because the heart of Christ, the Son of God, is perfectly circumcised, as are the hearts of all of those who are in him. The Old Covenant requires a heart of flesh. That's the demand of the Old Covenant. But is unable to mollify or soften the heart of stone. I have a heart of stone, Lord. I do not have a heart of flesh. How do I get a heart of flesh? I'm unable. I'm powerless to do it. The law can't do it for me. Moses can't do it for me. Sinai can't give me a heart of flesh. It's powerless to do it. The new covenant gives the heart of flesh because the heart of Christ, the Son of God, is flesh, not stone, as the hearts of all those in Christ have been softened by the grace of the Lord Jesus, the mediator and the head of this new covenant drama, this new covenant pilgrimage. I will write my laws in their minds and upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. I will bring not an external exodus, not an external Sojourn in the wilderness, not an external covenant written on tablets of stone, but I will bring an internal exodus, spiritually freeing them from the bondage of sin. And I will bring a spiritual sojourn and pilgrimage. I will carry them upon eagles wings through the wilderness of this world. And I will write. My covenant upon their spirit, upon their souls, upon their hearts, not upon the stone, the stony cold of their inability. But I will transform them into soft and cuddly hearts of flesh and will love them with an everlasting love. And they shall be my people forever. And I shall be their God forever because my son, my son belongs to me forever. And whoever belongs to my covenant perfecting performing son belongs to me in him forever. Now you are the sons and daughters 
of Jeremiah's prophecy. You are the heirs and joint heirs of this new covenant in Christ Jesus. You do not look back to a copy tabernacle. You look up to an eternal, true tabernacle, heavenly, eternal and endless, even as you look to the mediator of that covenant in that heavenly sanctuary, Jesus Christ, who has an endless life, your endless life in his. By grace, not one stitch by your merits. By grace, not ever by your performance. By grace, because by Christ, and not by you. I think that's what faith is all about. Ben, you have a question? So how did David, Abraham, and others like those men come by their new heart and flesh by their... That that must not be the old covenant, that must be the new covenant that was in, in... It's the effectual covenant that is symbolized or typified in the old. So every administration of that covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, whether it's to Abraham, whether it's to Joshua and Caleb, whether it's to David. Every administration of a covenant after the Garden of Eden is an administration of a grace. It has to be, could never be any other way. And therefore, as we'll see in Hebrews 11, they are all drawn in to that drama of the accomplishment of Christ. They see it afar off, but nonetheless they possess it. Because God possesses them in it, effectually uniting them to himself by this particular elective calling and grace so that they receive the riches of Christ ahead of time. But the riches indeed, though we are heirs to far surpassing riches. For as I said before, they only saw through a glass darkly, but they saw, they saw. Does that make sense? They are drawn into union with God through Christ as promised. From the covenant with Abraham, the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with David, all the way through to the new covenant in Jeremiah. Go ahead. Because it's an awful reality to think of those Israelites coming out of Egypt to die in wilderness, while at the same time, those that entered the promised land Probably were not a whole lot different than those people that fell in the wilderness. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Uh, remember that it's the generation that's over 20 years of age that drops in the wilderness. Those under 20 lived through the wilderness sojourn and entered into the promised land. And so <clears throat> there is a, a pattern, a patterning of structure in the book of Numbers, which divides the old Israel from the new in the, in the desert. And the new Israel goes into the land. Does that mean that we're hopeful of more believing hearts in that new Israel? Yes, I think we are. Though, is that 100%? No, it's not. But that generation that had the evil heart of unbelief at the report of the spies, they dropped dead in the wilderness, and God says in Psalm 95, he barred them from his rest. I mean, I'm bound by the scriptures here. Yes, it is. It's a horrible thing to think that those thousands, perhaps millions of souls that dropped in the wilderness were excluded from God's everlasting rest. 
And yet, how many millions have heard the universal call of the gospel and have sneered upon it as if this is some kind of superstition, evil heart of unbelief. Any other questions or comments? Scott? Going way back to the beginning, this is my question for this. On the spatial element of heaven, um, do you think, uh, obviously, heaven is an uncreated dimension? The souls that are there have absolutely no spatial dimension, not even anything analogous to anything spatial. But do you think there's a possibility that, there, at least for the bodies that are raised, there's something analogous to what we consider space, and that Jesus' right hand is not his left hand? I'm not uh, dogmatically opposed to what you're suggesting, and yet I think we're talking about a dimension in which things are so different. We can only talk about them analogous, analogously. For instance, God's right hand, he doesn't have a right hand. Well, we do have a right hand with Christ, that is true, because he has a resurrected body. But remember, 1 Corinthians 15 is saying that this resurrected body is completely unlike anything we have ever experienced or know about. Perfectly subject to a spirit dimension, a spirit realm, a Holy Spirit dominated uh, uh, arena. What is that? And what is a body in that, in that arena? Does it take up space? Does it take up place? It takes up place. Does it take up space? I don't think so. But it has a place. So what's a place without space? You see, you see what happens. Yes, I do. I think glorification in glory is beyond just the resurrection uh, in the 40 days that he was upon the earth after his resurrection. There's something higher yet. All right, now that's opinion. That's not dogma. So, you know, that's just grist for the mill, something to kick around. Interesting intramural discussion. All right. Blessings and see you next week.